0: Everyone. This is second part of the conversation with Alice Hughes, who is a professor at XTVG in China. In this part, we discuss about her work on bats, evolution of bats, why bats are important for the society and for the nature, uh, immunity of bats, what is the relation between bats and pandemics, and why it is important to conserve bats. Then we go on to the second topic, which is on um, biodiversity, where we discuss about what is the importance of biodiversity and what are the different methods of biodiversity. And then for the third topic, we go on to the importance of diversity in science and also women in science. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, so uh, today we have uh alice again uh, for part 2 and today we will will talk about um, her work on bats biodiversity and conservation uh, one the, the second part of the talk uh, would also be on women in science which is of course one of the major topics uh, for the diversity of science so um, let's start with bats what are bats i mean of course uh, during the pandemic everyone got to know about viruses, about bats, source of COVID-19, et cetera, et cetera. So what are bats?
1: So I'll start with what bats aren't. Bats are not birds. Bats are not flying rodents. In fact, if we think about the evolutionary tree, humans are closer to rodents than bats are. In terms of evolution, given that that was our last topic, Actually, the sister taxa to the bats are things like the horses and the pigs. They're in a completely different clade. uh, are whereas we as humans, along with the rodents, are Eucontobliraeus. So they're in an entirely different group from the rodents. And they're an absolutely fascinating group. If we're thinking about evolution, again, being that that is the backbone of all life, um, bats evolved over 60 million years ago. But the major split between the two groups is around 55 million years ago, which is very early on evolutionarily. And if we're trying to put that in the context of other mammals, it's about the time our human and our mammal ancestors split from the Tarsias. So when we're talking about bats, we tend to talk about them as this big single group. And even though they are monophyletic, so there was a shared ancestor once upon a time, it was a very, very long time ago and when we're talking about generalities it would be like saying well i saw that tarsier doing that and because that's also an early primate it, we can apply that to humans right and the reality is that because they are so the, the divergence is so ancient we can't draw that many generalities between them but there are some common pressures because flight is super expensive and because of that it's driven a whole suite of adaptations that allow bats to alive Uh, to live and to thrive, even though the um, pressure on them ecophysiologically can be very, very high. For example, humans, we're pretty terrible mammals. We're not good at walking because our skeletons aren't adapted to it. We get sick really easily. Anyone who's had kids will realize just how good we are at getting sick. Like You send your kids to school, they bring back an illness. But that doesn't really happen bats have an absolutely incredible immune system, which means they can carry a whole suite of different types of virus, and they often won't show any symptoms because the evolutionary and selective pressures that have allowed them to fly had a whole slew of other benefits, which means that they don't really get sick.
0: Nice. And uh, what do you think about... um, so, So bats are the only flying mammals, right?
1: They are the only mammals capable of powered flight. So there are other mammals that are able to glide, like various types of sugar glider, which are marsupials and flying squirrels, but that's the only mammals that have the capability of powered flight.
0: Interesting. And they're in a
1: really diverse group. So when we think about mammals, often people think about primates because they're like us. The reality is if you're a mammal, you're probably, in terms of statistics, a rodent or a bat, because rodents make up over a third of all mammals. Bats make up about a quarter of all mammals. So once you've got rid of all of the rodents and the 1,400 species of bats, not that many mammals left. And that already includes all the interesting ones anyway. Uh, so there
0: are uh, 1,400 species of bats?
1: More than 1,420 known species. but. Um. Because they're a really difficult group to work on, we're still describing species at a really high rate. So some of my team like Adetronilia, is working on cryptic bat species. Because as mammals, we are very visual. So we identify other mammals based on visual traits. Now, if you're out at night, visual traits aren't that useful. And so some of the ways we need to use to differentiate species of bat involve much more cryptic traits. And that means that when we look at them in more detail, when we look at them genetically, often there's a whole lot of hidden di- diversity that we didn't even realise was there.
0: Wow. And how how then something like bats can evolve uh, or like what would be that sort of uh, common ancestor between rodents and, and bats, you know, because if we look at the structures or at least the, uh, the, the skeleton, uh, skeleton maybe like it's more like human-like or uh, I would say that the...
1: If we think of them physiologically, so the earliest mammals were the synapsids, And synapsid mammals were basically mammals that look like that creature from Ice Age. Um, That's basically what the early mammals looked like. They had longish noses, they were small-bodied mammals. The early bats probably looked physically quite like that. And then they evolved the ability to do things like gliding, so they're front limbs would have become longer and they would have evolved the ability to glide and then that would have matured into the ability to fly. However, in terms of the early evolution of bats, we still don't know as much as we want to. We're missing up to 85% of the fossil record for a very simple reason. Basically, if you want to fly, you need a light skeleton. If you have a light skeleton like a bird does with honeycomb bones, those aren't going to fossilize well because if stuff goes on top of them, you've crushed it to powder. And so most of what we have in terms of bat fossils are bat teeth because like all mammals, they have these enamel teeth. So those fossilize really well. But if you just find a load of teeth in the bottom of a cave, okay, it will tell you a bit about that bat's diet, but it won't tell you a whole lot of other things about the bat. So if we're thinking about that early tree of life for bats, we have fossils of almost all of the extant groups from about 52 to 55 million years ago. But there were already a whole bunch of those groups that still have modern relatives back at 55 million years ago. But we have no fossils earlier than that early Eocene period. And that's a really critical time in terms of bat evolution. And we're currently still missing it. But even in countries like Germany and the Messel beds, there are some really interesting bat fossils. Same for China. Same for Africa. Some of the earliest bat fossils have been found in those regions, but they're all from similar times and they're all over the world. We still don't have the that first phase for
0: bats. Interesting, and. So, so, what is the habitat of bats? they can they live in cities? because now, uh, of course, with the globalization, the cities are uh, or in in general, modernization of a lot of places is happening. So, what is happening so to the bats in
1: the most diverse mammals in the city that every single listener is uh, has now, probably bats. There's a whole load of bat species that will inhabit our cities with us. They may even be in the roof of your house. so, there are some species that are adapted to live in dense, forested, or wooded environments. Some species that will forage in the desert. And there are a suite of species that are good at coexisting with us. Some of those will do things like eat mouse, mice. So some of the larger species, like megaderma, they are adapted to be small car- um, carnivores of small mammals. They will go and forage for those small mammals in agricultural areas. Many of them will live under bridges, in culverts, in pipes, under roads, in roofs. Basically, it depends on the species. But when we're thinking about bats, we often try and lump them into this little group of animals that will do similar things. The reality is that with 1,400 species, that's like almost 10 times, well, probably more than 10 times the number of primate species we have. And primates have as diverse habits as a target a human. So bats can roost virtually everywhere. They can eat virtually everything from scorpions to fish to blood to birds you name it, there's probably a group of bats that do it. Some diets are less common. So for example, there is only one known for bat, so a leaf eater. The reason is that leaves don't have a whole lot of energy and they often require a lot to digest. So if we think about leaf eating species, they are things like the ruminants. They have a big digestive system. Again, not so easy if you're a bat. And the one species that eats leaves is a really weird bat, where actually the males lactate as well as the females. They don't lactate much, but for any male mammal to lactate is very weird. And it's still not known if they are lactating to feed their young or just because there are so many phytoestrogens in the leaves they're eating. So bats are everywhere. They eat almost everything and they're specially adapted to their diet. The ones that eat fish will generally have enlarged feet, so they can scoop the fish out of the water. The ones that eat things like scorpions are very good at hunting, so they don't get stung by the scorpion. The ones that eat frogs can often tell if a frog is poisonous or not. And even the size of the frog by listening to the pitch of the frogs croak, and then they'll go and eat it. So they're specially adapted to their diet. In terms of things like the pollinators, the seed dispersers, again, super well adapted to their diet. There's even one species of bat with a tongue one and a half times the length of its body, which is the exclusive pollinator of one flower and is basically like a hummingbird but it's coming out at night. So bats are adapted for a whole suite of different environments, diets, roosting habits, etc. and they often have some pretty extreme adaptations to allow them to do that really well
0: fantastic and what do you what do you think about um, the of course the immunity of the bats because um, th- this is one uh, topic which i think a lot of people they explore and it's it's one of the most talked about topic during the pandemic time that how come yeah. something yeah. like covid-19 uh, can survive in bats and sort of infects yeah. like a lot of humans so
1: So as I've said before, humans are a pretty pathetic mammal. If our temperature goes up and down more than about five degrees, we might die because cellular processes start breaking down. Now, if you're a bat, you can't afford to do that. Your basal metabolism can exceed 16 times the basal rate, and that means you're generating a huge amount of heat. That means that the cellular processes you have in your body have to be able to withstand that magnitude of change in terms of metabolic rate, in terms of the release of oxygen radicals, in terms of the temperature in the cells. And that means if it was as pathetic as human cells, it would basically destroy everything. So bats have had to adapt to be able to withstand that extreme stress. And that has involved evolutionary steps at every level. Even things like cell-to-cell exchange in different um, compounds, etc., So even at that cellular level, there are adaptations. There are also things like tumor suppressor genes. There are things like when we get an infection, generally we have an inflammation. In bats, that inflammatory response is dampened. So when bats encounter a pathogen, because they have basically had to adapt to extreme stress all the time, they have an almost diametrically opposite response to the response we have. That means not only is their immunity massively increased and often they will not even show a response to a pathogen at a cellular level, but they also have what we call an extension in their health span. So a lifespan is how long you live. But if we think about humans, the last 10 or 20 years isn't actually great. Everything in our body is degrading. And even if you look at the photo of me from 10 years ago, okay, I look similar, but if you look up close, there are changes because humans age demonstrably. And even if there is a period of time when it's not so obvious, in bats, it's a lot less obvious, even on a cellular level. So as we get older, our telomeres shorten because of basically how different parts of that process work. In bats, that doesn't happen. Or if it happens, it may happen for a short time and then it gets repaired. So even things like DNA repair, the actions of telomerase, et cetera, all of those things have been optimized in bats. So even if we look at their cells, we cannot tell how old they are. Now, this is challenging because studies on bats have typically not been done over a long period of time. If we are trying to do a longitudinal study to see how bats age physically and ecophysiologically, you want to resample from the same individual but there aren't that many long-term studies. So much of the data we have is from a small number of these long-term studies that have been done in wild colonies. And then in some examples, things like captured bats in zoos, because there are some bats about 40 years old in a zoo. It's also really important to note that I've already talked about this extreme health span in bats. So if we compare them to a rodent of the same weight, that rodent might live maybe three years and the bat will live 40 years. We also know that there is another group of flying vertebrates where flight is still expensive, the birds. And we know that birds have an elongated lifespan for what we would expect for their body size, but it has not been as prolonged as the bats. So if we're looking at a 15-gram bat and a 15-gram bird, then the bird might live 15 years and the bat is still living 40 years. So they've done a whole suite of things that is enabling them to live a very long time, And we are still trying to understand what that is. However, just like everything else in bats, it's complicated. And so even within some groups of bats, some species live a long time and some don't. And we're still trying to determine why it is that some have had more of a selection for longevity than others and looking at it from a genetic basis. Because of course, having that kind of understanding could help provide therapies for human aging because aging isn't fun. I mean, it's not just about how we look. It's about things like brain function. So if we can understand the mechanisms behind aging, especially in terms of the fact that, yeah, humans aging mentally, not great, but it doesn't probably kill us. Aging in a bat, okay. There are things like the elasticity of bones, the elasticity of skin, those they need to fly. But also if there is impaired function of the brain, they're not going to echolocate properly. So even at that mental level, processing information, they need to still be as sharp as they are when they are younger organisms.
0: Interesting. So, and uh, so, are there any? Uh, so, in of course, if we if we look at uh, mythol in mythologies, uh, generally bats are also connected with you know these demonic I don't know sort of uh, creatures, etc. You know. And then going to Dracula, etc. Uh, but yep. what, what do you think? I mean, you are working with. Uh, so, is it first of all easy to work with bats, uh, or uh, there are certain species that uh, generally people they use as in sort of model species to to work with? And um, how, what, what do you think? Are they are they nice? Are they beautiful? Are they can <laughs> they can uh, survive? Uh, human dogs. Well,
1: okay. So first off, bats are awesome animals. I mean, in terms of diversity, people have this mental image of them as being ugly, dark, rodent-like animals. And they aren't at all. If you look up flying fox, if you Google sky puppy, you will find photos of cute baby bats that look more like dogs or foxes or even the monkey face bats, which look like teddy bears with giant eyes. Um, The colors are variable, the physiology is variable. There are some species like some of the free-tailed bats where the males will have a crest. There are some species with orange and black wings or black and white stripes. There are the cotton bud bats, which are small round white bats that roost under banana leaves and have little yellow nose leaves. So they're massively diverse. Many of them are very cute. Now, of course, some of them do have attitude problems particularly some of those with higher testosterone, I and mean, we know testosterone in anything generally does not <laughs> correlate the good attitude. So there are some pretty grumpy bats that if you catch them, they're going to want to bite you. And in some of them they will have enlarged glands and things because they've just got too much testosterone. Now the reason that bats often get demonized is because basically they come out at night. And humans tend to be scared of pretty much anything they don't know much about, from racism to almost anything. If we don't have enough information, our brains tend to fill in the blanks, and it doesn't fill it in with what it should be. The best way to cure any fear, learn more about it. Get rid of that uncertainty, that possible fiction with facts. And then you realize that actually, okay, they come out at night and maybe they come out of things like caves, but that doesn't mean they're bad. And there are other animals like fire salamanders where people actually thought they got born from the flames because people would burn wood and there would be salamanders hiding in the wood. So when they set it on fire and it starts to get hot, the salamanders would crawl out and people thought that they were coming from the flames. So people put two and two together and got eight. That kind of thing happens a lot with nocturnal animals. And so learn more about it. It's the same with some of the rodents, though, of course, rodents often live in areas that aren't that clean and they tend to like finding our food if we've left it out. So they'd be much more likely to spread a disease more directly to us. In terms of working with bats, I've always enjoyed it. I love caving. I love surveying these underground environments that we don't know much about. And when we're in a cave and we've got our bat detector out to record bat echolocation, it always strikes me that our human ancestors depended on those environments. So if we want to learn about ancient humans, we're often using things like cave paintings. So those early humans were living alongside bats, and those bats were probably eating things like mosquitoes that were spreading diseases to humans. So bats and caves have always been part of our human story too and we haven't got a good reason to fear them. We just have a good reason to try and cure our lack of knowledge, because again, that's something that we should always be working against. It's the best way to have misinformation.
0: Exactly, and I mean, of course, this is uh, that human unconscious bias uh, in general about almost everything that we that we have around us, you know. Um, then, uh, I mean, of course, we can we can talk about bat conservation then. Um, but before that, there is also an interesting topic which came out during the pandemic time, which was trading of bats uh, for eating or for I don't know uh, other things. Um, so, so what do you think? Perhaps. I mean, you are in China right now. You yes may have more uh, closer view on this.
1: So bats are actually a major item of bushmeat across basically all of the tropics, but especially the old world tropics. On islands like um, Micronesia and Polynesia, bats have always been a major item of food. And in some cases, their teeth are actually used as currency on some islands. So bats have been used a lot. If you go to a bushmeat market in somewhere like Indonesia or Malaysia, you will have big bats for sale. They are a popular item of bushmeat and in many places they are one of the most popular because of course it's quite a lean meat. It doesn't have a high fat content and it's quite popular from that perspective. Back when I was doing my PhD in Thailand and I said I was working on bats, the first thing they would say is batman and then they would say oh Kankao megai. Megai translates as flying chicken bat. They were everywhere. They were delicious. don't see them anymore. So yeah, in Asia, bats were common. Then we ate them. Now the bigger flying foxes are less common because we ate them all. Um, If you go to pretty much any part of rural Asia, there's probably significant hunting in bats. And a lot of my field work across this region, because I've been working in Asia for a long time, you will see evidence of hunting in the caves. Pretty much every minority in Asia is eating bats. And that extends from Nepal down through all the way down to Australia. And of course, across the African regions. So eating bats as Westerners, at least I'm a Westerner, traditionally. But actually, it's just something that's always been eaten here. And people need to be get away from these social and cultural Ties of what is acceptable to eat. I mean, I'm British, and so I grew up on an island where we said, "Oh, the French they they eat frogs and snails and horses. That's disgusting." But then they would tuck into another domesticated animal. These are all just different types of animal. The only difference with bats or dogs or other carnivores is some of these species can carry more diseases, and it's never good to eat a species which has a more complex immune system than you or something on a higher trophic level. Because if we're thinking about passing on diseases, something from a higher trophic level is eating things from other trophic levels. If it has diseases or parasites that can be passed on between those species, the higher you go up the trophic pyramid, the more you're going to be eating. So I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so I'm less vulnerable to that. But if you're eating other animals, then you can catch things
0: from it. Interesting. I mean, that's probably also one of the reasons why um, it's good to be vegetarian. Um, the So the other, I think, message would be that uh, why we should also um, understand what we are eating, basically. Because uh, if there are uh, those high-risk animals which can really... Um, transfer any sort of disease like this. Uh, it, it is, and with all the globalization we have seen in this past couple, uh, couple of years, that it can be that high risk for humanity in general. Um, so
1: that's an important thing to know. And whilst wild meat is still consumed in some parts of the world, we tend to forget that with domesticated meat, though that still has inherent risks, Because we typically keep it in controlled conditions and we medicate it, we are less likely to get diseases from it. And a point on that, the first time I did research in a tropical rainforest was when I went to the Peruvian Amazon, age 17. We were staying in the rainforest, we were doing research, but we did eat in some of the local villages in the rainforest. When we left the Amazon, every single other member of my group had to go to hospital with tropical diseases, including hepatitis, that they had caught from eating things in the rainforest. I was the only strict vegetarian. I was the only one who didn't end up having to be cured for some tropical disease, because especially if you are eating wild things and it's undercooked and your immune system isn't used to it. Yeah, you can catch things from it.
0: Wow. No, this is really good. I think it's a good message for probably the people who are working in the fields and maybe they can think of adopting a different lifestyle, which can be healthier for them and for for the other people as well. Um, But now let's.
1: That's a really interesting point, too. And. um, So. Bats have a variety of different diet types, but of course, meat is something that is more complex to digest, etc. It's likely to expend a lot more energy. There are secondhand antibiotics, etc. If people want to stay looking young, then actually having less meat in their diet would probably help them do that.
0: Nice. I'm not um, going to
1: ask anyone to guess my age at this juncture.
0: Yeah. Uh, But then now let's zoom out a bit. And uh, of course, we we can talk about bad conservation, but let's uh, talk about biodiversity in general and then uh, uh, the the conservation of biodiversity. Um, So why it is important to have biodiversity and uh, why it is important to conserve it.
1: Yeah, so those are questions that there are many answers to. The first one that I would ask is, do people like eating? I mean, most people, they kind of enjoy eating food, right? So that food, most of it, most of that plant food that they will be eating, or bread or whatever, has been pollinated. In most cases, those pollinators will be native species, and they also have a reliance on other components of the ecosystem. If you enjoy tropical fruit in particular, most of that will have a native pollinator. Now, in some cases, okay, there are apis mellifera, there are farmed bees, though some of them are getting sick from colony collapse disorder because of various mites. So if we are eating food that relies on native pollinators, we are benefiting from biodiversity. If we are eating animals that have been reared, they have been given concentrated food. That concentrated food will come from plants. Those plants also got pollinated. If we like water that is drinkable, that has probably gone through a, water, a river basin that has been filtered by trees. If it's not full of soil, it's because it's come through a healthy ecosystem. So basically, if you don't want a diet that is plain rice, because rice doesn't need pollinating, or bananas, though maybe not forever, because apparently the tastiest, mass-produced banana already died because of a virus and because they are clonal and they don't require pollination, it also means they're more susceptible to diseases. So now the boring yellow banana that most people eat that doesn't taste of anything and should just be turned into banana bread so it has some flavor. The reason that that isn't so great again it's a clonal species. I don't want to eat it forever. I would rather have those little bananas that are full of seeds because they got pollinated probably by a bat. Or I'll have some durian also pollinated by a bat. So we benefit from biodiversity every day. If you like chocolate, it was pollinated by flies. So we rely on biodiversity. We are part of the ecosystem. So even from a utilitarian perspective, the food we eat relies on biodiversity. If we want to go out, if we want to get those endorphins from walking in a woodland, then again, we benefit from biodiversity. And whilst we are used to thinking in a fairly utilitarian way in terms of economics, actually thinking about natural capital, nature-based solutions, et cetera, there's a whole lot more out there. And we need to be much more cognizant of just how much we benefit from biodiversity. We need to get better at protecting it because if we want future medicines, et cetera, we need biodiversity. And in terms of looking for that cure for cancer, Well, a few generations ago in the UK, childhood leukemia, cancer, was killing significant numbers of children. The cure for that is the rosy periwinkle. It's a rainforest species that comes from Madagascar. We want the next cure from a disease. Actually, working with indigenous people, working in these areas, there are many active ingredients in some of the plants, etc. out there, but if we destroy it all... Then yes, maybe we'll come up with some synthetic compound, or we'll be able to crisper it away one day. Though of course, then you have ethical issues as well. So I would rather rely on biodiversity for that if I can.
0: So all in all, food, health, and uh, climate. So whatever we talk about, it's we need and biodiversity. social,
1: cultural, etc. I mean, to me, a biodiverse world is a world in color. If you want to get Take that away, then you're living a world in black and white, and that doesn't sound great to me.
0: Interesting, um, but then of course uh, that I think that's that's actually clear to many people. It's just that probably we consciously don't think about the importance of biodiversity, especially in these houses. Like when we are sitting in a house, it's no one. no one thinks about like what is happening in the wildlife and um, how people are sort of destroying the, those uh, that biodiversity. Uh, so but, so what, what do you think? What are the challenges to uh, for the conservation of biodiversity?
1: Well, the first thing is we have to realize how reliant we are on biodiversity and how much we benefit from nature. One of the major drivers of global biodiversity loss is unsustainable use of natural resources. So if we are thinking about global supply chains that is an absolutely crucial element. Many of the global targets in terms of biodiversity make these national goals but those ignore the fact that most of the world's biodiversity is in developing countries and it's being driven extinct by unsustainable use which is imported to the west. If we do not factor supply chains into it if they are not paid fairly if we don't have good ways of tracking and tracing, We cannot maintain global biodiversity. And actually making people realize that we need to switch from quantity to quality, we need to value what we're having, enjoy the diversity, et cetera, and be a lot less wasteful, then we can start to try to develop the nuanced targets we need. And whilst most people have probably heard of fair trade, trying to have the equivalent in terms of actual conservation impact and sustainability is still a significant way off. We're starting to move towards it, but it's been a very long journey, and it really re- requires a much more conscious market in terms of making decisions around what we consume as individuals and how we consume if we're going to do better. I would also encourage everyone to eat local. It's not just the greenhouse gas footprint. It's also supporting that local economy, and especially as in the West, often there are more guidelines now on not spraying as bad chemicals on the environment. In terms of having a hedgerow, so you have less soil erosion, you have less soil being washed into the river, but you also maintain diversity in that hedgerow. So eat local. And when you're not eating local, then try to eat consciously and be a conscious consumer. And don't buy 10 things of something cheap spend a bit more and have something that's really good quality and has a story behind it because doing those small steps is actually what enables us to have these sustainable supply, um, supply chains.
0: Yes um, I think one of the uh, the problem with, with uh, the conservation is that a lot of people they don't understand uh, the, the cheap products that they get like how how the the, the price is reduced. Because it's not like uh, you can change the price of raw material, and it's not like that the companies are going to reduce their uh, profit. And that generally doesn't happen. I mean, that'll be an ideal world if uh, cap- capitalists would think that they can reduce their profit and uh, you know think about good of the like of the humanity and the world. Um, so, so that that's how. I think also is one thing that why people should think why uh, once they are getting cheaper products it's basically the cheaper labor somewhere or uh, you know that the somehow
1: I think we need to have a much more empathetic world. Think about the way some people are forced to live. If it has cheap labor it probably also has a much bigger footprint and that's chemicals being put out into the environment that's higher cancer rates, that's a whole suite of other things that we don't want to see. And whilst in the West, people have probably realised that battery farm chicken's not so great, but they'll go and get their organic eggs and then they'll go to Primark and get 10 shirts that have been made in a sweatshop. Um, we need to be much more conscious of the way we live and the impact those decisions have. And we are still not very good at realising that we now have this butterfly effect. We have that... Six stages where we're connected to a huge number of people all over the planet, but many of them are being forced to live very compromised lives, and that's also compromising their ability to be good environmental stewards.
0: Yeah, uh, when I was talking to uh, ethologist Franz Dival, he he mentioned that the uh, it'll be really good if uh, somehow these companies that they, they can start putting. Uh, a barcode or something that people can scan and see um, how the animals are raised, for example, or what are the their living conditions. And then if they want to decide they can eat or something. Probably, I mean, it's a good idea in a way that the people can be more conscious in, in that sense. So if this happens for all the products that you're getting and if there is a barcode that you can scan and see what sort of conditions were really used uh, during the making of that product. Uh, I think that's that's, super
1: interesting. That kind of thing is starting to happen. So Sainsbury's in the UK is looking at having a traffic light scheme that instead of just telling you that eating this is actually a day's worth of calories, it can have things like the sustainability. There are Mm -hmm. also mechanisms coming into place like sterling verification that will tell you if your food, the product you are buying is associated with deforestation. And at the recent IUCN meeting, France actually made a pledge to not import deforestation. So we are starting to connect up the dots, but we all need to be doing it in a much more aware way because it's easy to say, relatively easy to say, okay, well, we're going to trace these supply chains to reduce deforestation. Great. However, if we think about things like animal testing, often products that have no animal testing, okay, they didn't have it on the final product doesn't mean that all of the parts of that product weren't separately tested on animals. So something we need to be aware of, even when we are doing this supply chain tracing, to also make sure that that vegetable oil in your product isn't from palm oil that got sourced from somewhere where it was deforested. Now, this is a problem that the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil has had. It was basically trying to stop deforestation being associated with the product. One of the major issues with it is many of its mills for palm oil will have products from many producers coming in, and some of those would have deforestation associated with them, and then they'd all be mixed up in the mill. Now, we are aware this happened. It's been a major barrier to the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil being successful, but these things are slowly being dealt with. It's the same in fishery supply chains, where once it reaches the depot, you can follow it from there but following it from where it was caught to the depot can be really challenging if you have many smaller producers feeding in there. So that's something we still haven't got a great handle on that will require more work. But things are massively further than they were a few years ago in terms of implementing traceable supply chains.
0: Interesting. Um, then I think the there is also this point that... Uh, how much? Of course, there is a globalization uh, that, that we see today, but still, how much change a person can make from distance? You know, so for example, if I'm sitting in Europe and I have to think about um, how to help orangutans in Borneo, or uh, the the people who are eating bush meat in Africa, or as you mentioned, uh, people eating bats in Indonesia, um, the, these these kind of strategies. So. Are there any ways to do it? Uh, What people can do in that case?
1: So if you are in the West, it started off with smaller shops like Oxfam producing these fair trade things that often are more traceable. Those kind of initiatives are getting much bigger. So it is becoming easier to buy aware and especially for specialist products that are produced in the tropics it's becoming easier to see where they came from and along with things like fair trade to actually trace some of those other types of impacts. I think if we keep watching that market, it is one that is evolving as people become more aware of this. I also find it very ironic. So I'm, I'm British and of course I read the British news despite having not been there for two years. Um, we see many of these movements like insulate Britain, talking about leaky roofs. Actually, if we want to make a real difference to things like climate change, we also need to think about the bigger picture, the fact that we are a tiny little country and a lot of our impact is through imported impacts. So paying fairer prices to enable countries with biodiversity to maintain that biodiversity and meet climate targets is really important. And sometimes that will mean paying a little bit more, but it can have a much bigger impact Now, I'm due to be going to the CBD COP tomorrow. And the CBD COP is due to be proposing the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. And that's been the mission of a couple of years of development and follows a decade of biodiversity. In November, there is due to be the COP26, the climate COP. Now, climate has always got a lot more traction than biodiversity. So whereas a biodiversity convention will be a few thousand people, Climate convention can be a few tens of thousands of people. They've been much better at mobilizing resources. However, there is a real danger that some of the climate targets may directly negatively impact biodiversity. So for example, you may hear about the Great Green Wall that is being developed in the Sahel Desert of Africa. They want to make a forest in the desert. Now, of course, if you're thinking about impacts on water, that could reduce the water table you are replacing a native ecosystem with a non-native ecosystem in an area that does not traditionally have trees. Similarly, the billion tree tsunami in Pakistan, they were making monocultures of eucalyptus, which is native to Australia. So some of these climate targets are bad for biodiversity. What we need to do is look for synergies. So say, okay, we know old-growth forest is great at sequestering carbon, especially if it's a peat forest like much of the forests in Indonesia. It also maintains biodiversity. Also, a functional forest is actually much better at functioning, and that includes carbon sequestration. So the first climate targets we need need to focus on areas that we may lose to deforestation if we don't manage them better. And at the moment, The loudest voices are often those saying, well, let's help Africa, because Europe really wants to focus on Africa now. And they forget about Asia. And North America focuses on South America. Everyone forgets about Asia, despite it having more than half the world's population, which is impressive, forgetting half the world's population, but never mind. So we need to get much better at connecting these things and making sure that we can look for these joint positives from climate biodiversity syntheses and not try to do one whilst forgetting the other because we'll probably end up not doing either then because our plants monoculture which will then die because it either doesn't have enough water which is what happened in the great green wall of china when they planted a giant row of poplars most of them died of either drought or disease so it didn't work in the end and it was massively expensive unless we want to repeat those mistakes over and over again we need to learn from the past and that means making functional forests to meet the new climate targets
0: right um i think one of the uh, challenges um uh, for the conservation is uh, so of course i mean if you if you have an empty stomach you can't uh, think of uh, conservation um, that's one of the things and most of these forests, when we think of, I mean, I have been to some of the national parks in India, which were, um, of course, forests, and then they, uh, cons- like, they they sort of made them in, a, in in national parks. And what I saw is that in these national parks, there are actual villages where people are living and uh, it, they they are staying there. And the thing is that all the poaching that happens, it's, it's majorly through these guys who are staying in the villages. And if they don't have enough resources, of course, I mean they'll they'll go. They, they can swing both ways. I mean they can go either for the conservationist side that they can help us uh, to really uh, save species, or they can also um, go to towards the side of poachers and help them to. Because in I think that in their case it's more like survival uh, kind of thing, and there um, I think it it also um, is impactful the The travel in general, you know that the your um your love for the wildlife, that you are going there and somehow exploring uh, those areas and spending money so that you you just go and support those those people who are staying close to the to these habitats and uh, somehow then they can find a living code in a in a way to uh, you know like to to impact them positively. Uh, does it make sense? I mean,
1: uh, it does. I don't know how much so, it
0: it can Im- impact, but um, to to have these kind of uh, programs where people uh, from different places they go and explore those different areas where these wild species are there, but then uh, it's also that we are uh, somehow affecting those that their natural uh, environment. Um,
1: so having indigenous communities and local populations in protected and natural areas is a very divisive topic within conservation. And organizations like uh, WWF, so the uh, Worldwide uh, Trust for the Conservation of uh, Nature, has had many issues because of moving these indigenous populations out of protected areas. Now, if you talk to conservationists, many of them have mixed feelings because yes, often they will hunt, Often they will be utilized by people from outside to help extract valuable products from agar wood to tigers, because if they are being paid more for something that is at a low level, they're likely to do it. So it's a very challenging topic because if they're in these areas and they don't have access to resources, obviously they want to do them. But at the same time, if your forest has been shrunk down to one patch and it still has people in it, then it can be quite difficult to manage it sustainably. And this is something that every country with indigenous populations is trying to reconcile. Some of those people will be living in a much more harmonious way with nature, depending on multiple different cultural and other social and economic pressures on those populations. So it's challenging. In countries like Costa Rica, where there is a big ecotourism movement, they actually have a very good economy because of conserving their natural environment. And so, because it is very beneficial in terms of attracting tourism, a lot of people are very happy to live alongside nature because there are very good opportunities to profit from it, and there are cooperatives, so local women can sell products, for example. In countries like Kenya, I think tourism exceeds 12% of GDP, and most of that tourism is not for trophy hunting. It is for going and going on safari and taking your family and taking uh, photos and paying to go into the protected areas. So in many countries, it can be economically viable to do that, but it's always a very challenging balance. And organizations need to work very hard so those populations can access the resources they need without living in an unsustainable way because obviously if they're allowing uh, tourists in, but they are also helping poachers, and then the tourists come and they don't see the animals they want to see, they're not going to come back because they didn't get what they were looking for. So finding ways that people can enjoy and benefit from nature, but also have a decent standard of living is very important. In some areas that's much easier to do that than others. If somewhere is, for example, politically unstable, there are many places that are politically unstable, then even the embassy of a country like the UK will say, don't go there because you might not come out alive." Now, if we think about some African countries, like many of the home ranges of gorillas and chimpanzees, politically, those areas can be very unstable. So yeah, a lot of people would love to go and look for gorillas, but they don't want to get shot in the process. And so obviously for places like that, then they're too politically unstable for tourism, but biodiversity may be under threat. Conversely, in some cases, actually biodiversity is well protected because most people are too scared to go to the areas with biodiversity because it's not stable. So it's very challenging to work under those situations in particular. And the outcomes of that can be very variable. An interesting example would be something like the Boxer Revolution way back in China. Now we know that during that period, many native species went almost extinct because people were starving. One of the most interesting examples is Per David's deer. So Per David's deer was described by Father David. He was a naturalist and monk who lived in China. And he actually paid the guards to smuggle the skins of this unknown deer species out of basically a a palace. And it got described as a new species based on this one population and he managed to get permission for a small number of them to be exported to what later became Woburn Safari Park in the UK. Then the Boxer Revolution happened, the wild deer escaped, they all got eaten. So the entire world's population was in a couple of zoos in the UK and they later got released back into China. So especially in these areas which are more fragile politically, then it can be a very double-edged sword for biodiversity. But in those kinds of cases, having a small population outside the country and links back to the home country can provide it with a future when things stabilize.
0: Oh, that's that's interesting. Okay, uh, so from uh, maybe... Uh, From biodiversity, uh, we can also talk about now uh, diversity in um, human species. Um, So, of course, uh, we can talk about uh, diversity in human societies in general, but uh, since we are scientists and that's one place where uh, we can definitely uh, talk about it. Uh, So what do you think about diversity in science?
1: If you want to have good ideas, you need diverse opinions. You don't get diverse opinions by having a lot of people who have the same background and cultural background, social background, same gender. So more diverse teams make better decisions and they do better science. If we're thinking about conservation, you also get better outcomes because, yeah, I come from the UK. I'm not going to go to the Philippines and say, you should do conservation this way because I know best. It's not going to work. So if you want creative science, you want a diverse team. If you want impactful science, you need a diverse, diversely experienced team.
0: Indeed. Um, but then um, one of the major topics nowadays is the, uh, the gender roles, like what are the gender distinctions in, in science? Um, shall we talk about it? What do you think? So
1: some nice stereotypes I encounter. I get told that women can't do fieldwork. And then I say, well, the best cavers and tree climbers in my group are female. Um, the whole fieldwork issue is very divisive in the biological sciences because I say, okay, oh, women are fragile and weak. And I was like, how often does fieldwork rely on brute strength? Like, I would rather have someone who isn't trying to show how strong they are when they go to the field, but actually takes sensible precautions and says, okay, well, I'm not going to climb up that cliff while it's raining because I might slip. Then, oh, I'm strong enough to do it. Oh, let's airlift them off the bottom of the cliff. Um, So in terms of having a safe team, you want sensible people, no matter what the gender is. Often they are going to be women because especially if it's younger men, there are a significant proportion that want to show how strong they are or how good they are. We don't need that in the field. In terms of creative science, unfortunately, men need to step up to the plate and be better allies and better supporters of women because there are far too many barriers imposed just because of gender. Now, it's a very interesting topic. And even if you look at the way that students will grade teachers, if you have a male and a female teacher using the same transcript, or even interacting with students in a virtual classroom without any speech, the women will normally be looked on as having less leadership capability, even when they use the same script. We are so conditioned to see men as more authoritative that it often holds women back, even when it wasn't a woman doing it. They just had a female name listed. So we need to be much fairer because there are so many things holding women back from opportunities now, and that isn't deserved. One thing I find it really tough to do is to tell my female students, you're going to need to be maybe five times better than a man to get the same opportunities, because that should not be the case. And sadly, it often is.
0: Interesting. I mean, it it's of course that, that shouldn't be the case. And, being scientists, we can talk uh, uh, from the science point of view that once we go down and like really check what are the differences between uh, different genders. Uh, I mean, we we can't find any. I mean, of course that the there are some biological differences, but uh, all of us we are yeah. based on the like we are, we Most come from
1: aren't relevant. I mean, we're means. very good at holding those to account, but in terms of our day-to-day jobs. Me being male or female would not make a difference to the science I do on a laptop or to the, the science I do in a cave. So we need to make sure we give opportunities based on people's capability. But even if you look at the plenaries for a conference or the prize winners, time and time again, at every single level, you see that even when an equal number of women have been proposed, they have equal credentials, they are less likely to be selected because there is so much social conditioning that make us assume that men have achieved more. Also conference organizers need to be more creative. Often they'll be like, oh, I saw this person at a conference. They gave a great clean, plenary, we'll invite them. And that person gets an invite and it's like, "Hmm, that's the fifth plenary invitation I've had this year. So often the people who get opportunities keep getting opportunities. There's also a very interesting phenomenon where men will help men, but they are less likely to help women and women are less likely to help women too, because they've had to compete so hard for their position that they'll be thinking, well, I need to be seen to be strong and be independent. And maybe there's only one place for women. So I better not help those other women. And that means that I I think every woman has witnessed it. Men are helping men up the ladder. No one is helping women up the ladder. And that means that, of course, that system self-propagates because the woman is climbing a slippery pole and the man is going up the elevator.
0: Interesting. So um, one thing is that the, uh, f- for sure, I mean, uh, we we can put this thing out there that uh, biologically there is no difference. Uh, it's just that, of course, nature produces at least two sexes. I mean, there can be more. Uh, it's just male and female. But then... I think there are uh, these after effects of culture, which makes them uh, uh, men and women. And that's basically where it comes to those differences that generally people see. Um, But what do you think? How to overcome it?
1: I think all of us need to challenge those perceptions. The trouble with any cultural biases, a lot of it is very subconscious. Now, I grew up in a conservative household. That means that my family would believe that the sons would be the ones who inherited. So when I got my PhD, I was like, hey, dad, I I changed my title. I'm Dr. Hughes now. Of course, in a traditional household, you would change from miss to missus as your title change. I was like, see, I I have the best name. I'm Dr. Hughes now. Uh, They're only Mr. So I have the best version of our family name. Um, We need to get away from biases and Taking a step away from something and say, Hang on, I still, I just had this thought. Where did that come from? Especially when it comes to judging others, because so much is subconscious. And you cannot challenge something unless you realize that you are feeling a certain way. So be more cognizant of why you make the decisions you do. If you think, Well, that person is better than that person, think about why. Was it really based on the science or was it just something else in the perception? If you are reading a journal paper, don't read the name of the author. Decide on what you think of the science because we know that from studies, um, often if it has a female name at the top of the paper, it gets cited less. So there are all of these tiny little subconscious biases that we need to get better at challenging. And the first thing we do is try to stop noticing gender before we've made up our mind about the rest of everything else. There's a really interesting example. There was someone who had a sex change. So they became, they were female, they changed their sex, and then they went by a male name. They once overheard someone saying, what a better scientist they were than their sister. And they're like, it wasn't my sister, that was me you think my science is better now because I'm now seen as a man. I mean, that's a really good example for just the amount of bias women face. So we need to get much better at challenging it. That also means challenging our perception of things like how does a scientist look? It isn't just an old white guy in a lab coat and goggles or glasses. Okay. A scientist is anyone, be it it's An Indonesian girl wearing a head torch in a cave or a scientist at the microscope. All of those are scientists and all of them are equally credible and viable. But we need to make sure that that little stereotype in our head isn't just one non-diverse scientist. and We need to create opportunities for everyone.
0: Right. Um, But then what what I see generally nowadays is that uh, I think people are pushing that uh, narrative, you know, that, uh, of course, they, they talk about uh, women in science, but most of the institutes, uh, what they are trying to achieve is that 50-50% uh, ratio, you know, like we mm-hmm. want to have 50% male, 50% female, but do you think it makes sense? Because as a as a rational person, or as a scientist, you you know that there are no differences. So at the end, as you said, that people should be judged based on their signs rather than uh, on their gender itself. So what do what do you think about that?
1: It's a very challenging topic. So no one wants to be the token woman added to a committee for being female. You want to earn that position. The issue is that we know that diverse committees make diverse decisions. So if you have a committee of all men, they're likely to choose people who look like themselves. They are likely to choose more men. So, if you don't have that time that you actually proactively try to find people to change that balance, then you are never going to get a change, and that makes it very challenging. So, having all female committees, quotas, etc., is difficult, but there need to be ways that promote opportunities so that people can take up those roles because they will open the door for the next generation, and. I have heard from men in places like New Zealand, and Norway, and the Americas where they say, oh, it's so much easier for women. I wish that we had those opportunities. They choose less capable women than men just because they're trying to increase the ratio. And okay, that's, that's difficult. But if you look at the number of postdocs at each of those levels, often you do not see what they are saying you see. You don't see that it is all women. You see a mixture. And okay, that is only one part of the strategy, but you do need to have women on that committee because otherwise they will keep choosing men and putting men forward. But you also need to have better uh, facilities and strategies to retain them. We know that at every point in the process, you lose women. There are multiple reasons why. One of them is in academia, an increasing proportion will need to move overseas. Now, because of how we're socially conditioned, A woman is less likely to say, okay, family, we're moving to the other side of the planet now. Quit your jobs and pack your bags. We're moving. That just, it doesn't happen as much because women are to their families and others. So the need for mobility is one reason that often holds women back. Another is things like childcare. The fact that as a scientist, you do not do a nine till five. You do a eight or 12, whatever else. There are long days. You have irregular days. You may have field work and travel. So there are all these other types of barrier that means we need to be more flexible. But certainly finding ways to make sure women are present at the decision table are part of it. I mean, I'm at an institute where there are three female-led groups and 40 male-led groups. You think any decision that is ever made by the institute is ever friendly on women? Because they aren't. And instead of seeing the gender balance equalizing over time, you either see it staying the same or getting worse. And yeah, that is possible. It can get worse than three versus 40. Um, And so we need to get better at creating those opportunities and making sure that the decisions reflect what women think is important. A really good example of that is um, Sritama will laugh at this. We have a lactation room. Now we don't have female students who are married typically because there are no dorms for married couples. So the female students don't have kids. And there are three female group leaders and not so many female researchers, which means no one is going to go to lactate. Um, This was a strategy designed by men to help women who didn't understand what the problems actually were for the women. So we need to have women saying, these are the issues. Please help us with them rather than men saying, you know what? Women lactate. Let's make a room for them to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> that's probably the classical example of having a Y chromosome. Um yeah, maybe. Yeah, it doesn't
1: have much genetic information.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but then yes, uh the, I think one one uh, thing can be that uh, why uh, we need more education and more uh, science communication because um, at least if we can increase uh, funding in the science, that that can also help in to ease out that competition and you know include more people in general. Uh, of course, uh, the, where more people can in general join the 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 RR uh, initiatives, our research, etc.
1: Yeah, so a really great initiative in a number of Western countries are grants that enable women to come back after having a career gap because we know that a significant number of people in their 20s get married. Maybe they have kids, and so they have a gap in their career. Now, in academia, it's pretty fatal to have gaps. So having grants that enable them to come back is really important, especially when there are so many initiatives that focus on people who are young and haven't had those gaps. So creating those opportunities, so it's not like, oh, well, too late, you missed it, is also important. Money is always good, but it's about how and where it's used, so it creates those opportunities. But also, I mean, something that is finally happening in the West. Now, I don't think there should be such a thing as maternity leave. I don't think there should be such a thing as paternity leave. I think there should be family leave. So if your parents are sick or your kids are sick, then it's applicable to everyone. It doesn't discriminate by gender or age. And it means that whether you're married or not, none of that matters. So when your parents are aging or when your kids need to go to the doctor, it allows everyone to access it. And having strategies like that also help institutes make sure that they are not making discriminatory policies based on who they think is not going to be working.
0: Yeah. Um, so the other thing that you wanted to discuss was um, Nobel Prize, that you are yes. you are not happy this year. Uh,
1: so. so the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in physics was Marie Curie. The next woman to win a Nobel Prize in physics was 70 years later. 70-year gap. Now, there are women who do physics. We look at the Nobel Committee makeup. The literature prize is uh, deliberated on by, I think, four men and two women. The uh, Nobel Prizes for the other ones have three men and three women. However, the oldest man is younger than the youngest woman. All of the women were born in the late, uh, the early 60s or the 50s, and so you have a generational effect now. Now, diverse committees, diverse decisions. The fact that the youngest man is around my age and the youngest woman is older than my parents means that, of course, less women are going to get selected. We need to have strategies in place that represent what science is making the committees, making the decisions, etc. The moment you don't see that, Now, we know from looking at studies that women win less prizes in the sciences, even if they get nominated, even if they do good science. The first way to get away from that is to have strategies that make sure that you have a reflective committee making the decisions. You have a nomination process that doesn't discriminate by gender. Often that means you need a slightly bigger committee because they are more likely to consider a more holistic range of factors, but it does mean you end up with a better solution. And the other important thing to note is that if you get prizes, you get more grants. If you get more grants, you do better science. If you do better science, you get more prizes. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The people who have more opportunity will get funding. And that means that they can open even more opportunities to themselves. And so making sure we remove that discrimination also helps more creative science by facilitating a pathway for more diverse people.
0: Right. So we are almost at the end, and I think, at the end, um, this will be an interesting uh, question. So what has been your experience as a conservationist, as a uh, working on the field, as a scientist, and especially a woman in the science?
1: Um, It's challenging. I mean, I am not someone who exactly worships high fashion, et cetera. My clothing every day is field clothing. Um, Being a female has been a nightmare at times because you are not often judged by your science. You are judged by being a female. Um, We need to do better. I don't want younger women to have to fight the battles I have had to fight to get the opportunities I have had. And a lot of that is because some men are not good at dealing with women. And so they are scared of women. We need to have a society where you can converse with someone no matter what their gender is based on what they have to say rather than based on if they're XX or XY. We need to create opportunities for everyone. Now, I can teach my students how to communicate better, to have presence, to be seen as being credible because there are subconscious cues we all look for that help us work out what those are. A lot of them are tied with being male So even how you stand, the presence you have when you communicate have the difference. But we also need to make ways. So if you are a girly girl or a more masculine woman, it doesn't matter. And people can look at your science without making a decision about your science before you open your mouth.
0: Right. And I think that should motivate a lot of youngsters, uh, the the people who want to uh, start their career in the science. Okay, and at the end, um, if people want to reach you uh, or they want to read more about your work, what is the best uh, place to, to contact you?
1: I'm Easy to find online. If you Google me, you'll find photos, some of them old as well as my research. You can Google my name and there's a lot of papers up there. I'm also on Twitter, Alice C. Hughes, and people are welcome to reach out. I'm happy to converse. Science is brought on by communication. So ask questions, start discussions, I'm happy to hear anyone's thoughts.
0: Okay, so with that, I uh, thank you for the session, for the great discussion, and of course, uh, motivation for the coming years. Thank you so much. It's been
1: a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing everyone's creative work out there. Please reach out to me if you have any questions.